0: Home house
1: did i do something wrong <laughs> no you I seem just... unnerved really yeah I just do i unnerve you no will you tell me if i did something wrong you didn't do anything wrong okay okay
0: this is caroline and i'm mike welcome to do we unnerve you the undoing podcast your after show podcast dedicated to hbo's newest miniseries, the undoing starring hugh grant and nicole kidman The Undoing is a six-episode miniseries based on the 2014 book, You Should Have Known, by Gene Hanf Karolitz. It is directed by Suzanne Beer and written by TV impresario David E. Kelly. Caroline, do you know how much stuff David E. Kelly has created in television over the years?
1: Oh, my Lord. So, 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 so much. Probably most of the things that you and I grew up with on TV.
0: It's shocking. I mean, yeah. literally going all the way back to 1986 with L.A. Law, literally through Big Little Lies and Mr. Mercedes in the last few years, the guy has just maybe been one of the most prolific TV producers and creators, like, ever. Certainly in
1: my and your lifetimes. Like, I mean, he would have defined all of our TV watching from, what, elementary school on up.
0: Yeah, I mean, and they're all bangers. Like, there there's really few bad shows here. L.A. Law, Doogie Howser, Picket Fences, Chicago Hope, Ally McBeal. Uh, The Practice, Boston Public, uh, Harry's Law, which I love. He is longevity personified. Interesting, him and Nicole Kimmon reuniting here for Big Little Lies. When screeners hit for The Undoing, what about it drew you to it?
1: So I always enjoy a mystery thriller type show. I always want something to think about and try to to tease out what I think is going to happen next. Predictions are the most fun for me. Also, this is this is a strange little thing about me, but I missed a section of Hugh Grant's filmography because I had three babies in 10 and a half months. And during that exact time frame is when he did a lot of his work that a lot of our peers are very familiar with. And my hands were very full, so I just missed a ton of what he was doing. I mean, Bridget Jones, Love Actually, Sense and Sensibility, like I, I, I was Breastfeeding and changing diapers and stuff like mad. So I missed all of that. So I have always wanted to get into like, why is he somebody that everybody's like feels is very charming. I jumped back into him in Paddington too. If that gives you a little idea of where I missed him. Also, I love Nicole Kidman. I think that she was fantastic in Big Little Lies. I watched that whole thing and loved it. I felt like this was going to be really a powerhouse show. When I sat down to watch the very first one, I was like, well, let's see what this is about. And they sucked me in in this episode one. How about you?
0: It was a combination of it looked kind of like a murder mystery thriller. I like drama and I like serialized drama. But things that deal with, like, just family dramas, shows like Parenthood, which people love, those kind of family dramas never really suck me in. That That's not a dynamic I'm super interested in covering. I was a little worried about if it was going to be a family drama thing, but then when I realized it was going to have, like, a, a murder component to it and a thriller, psychological thriller aspect to it, then I was kind of all in. Two was the cast. Hugh Grant and Nicole Kidman together on a TV show, not like a movie. I mean, that's the cast of like a blockbuster movie you've put together now. You're thinking, you know, summer blockbuster, Oscar contender kind of movie. But then you add David E. Kelly and and Suzanne Beer. I mean, Suzanne Beer is no slouch. We didn't really go into her biography, but she did The Bird Box, the big Netflix hit with Central uh, Bullock a couple of years ago. And before that, her big TV credit was The Night Manager, which was one of my favorite The TV miniseries of 2016, I've been waiting for them to make a sequel to it uh, starring Hugh Laurigan to use his like real, like super sexy accent. The Night Manager was a fantastic miniseries. So just it's it's a stacked cast. It's a stacked in stack creatives. And, you know, you have Donald Sutherland. There's a lot going for this series. Mm,
1: Sutherland. You add a Sutherland in. That's a spice that like I need in my life.
0: Add a Sutherland in and you're doing Mm -hmm. okay. Donald is the draw for me.
1: You know, like you, like, make something to eat and then someone comes in and puts, like, a big load of, like, shredded cheese and, like, sour cream. So like, that's Mm -hmm. the Sutherland thing. He's the paprika.
0: (laughs) Uh, I love it. For sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I I talk about event TV a lot. I talk about the golden age of of television. When you're bringing these kinds of people to bear on your screen, how could you not want to watch it uh, and talk about it? You know, it it, (laughs) – took a lot to not make a breastfeeding joke just now when you mentioned it because – Oh, don't
1: I think it. I didn't drop that there. Well, I mean, well, come on I'm, now.
0: I, I mean, it was, I, I was sitting here and I began to <laughs> sweat profusely as I was hitting my mute button. But uh, it leads me to a good point that I would like to address to our dear listeners. This show, The Undoing, deals with some racy content. It is a TV mature – Show, we will be a TV mature podcast. We are not going to shy away from the sexy elements of it because I think it's a huge component of the show and the tone. Yeah. So. If you are of fra- of a fragile nature, one, I don't know why you're watching The Undoing, but two, <laughs> I, you probably are not going to terribly enjoy some of the things that we're going to talk about. Right, and
1: just to be clear, also, like Mike and I are people who are very open about, you know, hey, this turned me on, or like, hey, that was super sexy. So, just yeah. again, we're going to talk through some of those scenes, and we're gonna we're going to delve into why did they do that and what did it bring to the show.
0: Uh, yeah, what and what did it do to us? <laughs> So, but let's jump in though, because I I think it's worth noting, we're not going to be plotty. We're assuming if you're listening to us, unless you really like our voices from other podcasts you've heard, you've already watched the episode, but we're going to talk about the major themes. We're definitely going to talk about the clues that may be dropped because this is a whodunit Uh, as the end of the episode sets up. There are questions to be answered. There may be clues dropped throughout that I think are important to talk about. I will give the quick synopsis if that's okay with you, Caroline. Sure. This is the official logline from HBO. The limited series follows Grace and Jonathan Fraser, played by Kidman and Hugh Grant, who are living the only lives they ever wanted for themselves. Overnight, a chasm opens in their lives, a violent death and a chain of terrible revelations. Left behind in the wake of a spreading and very public disaster, and horrified by the ways in which she has failed to heed her own advice, Grace must dismantle one life and create another for her child, played by Noah Jupe, and her family. It's based on the 2014 novel by Jean Hanf Korolitz's novel, You Should Have Known. I don't really want to get into the book, if that's okay with you, Caroline. I, I know what happens in the book. And I think it's worth discussing, but I think it's worth discussing once we get to the end of the series.
1: That is the best time to talk about when you're sourcing from a book, because that way we can actually look back at the entire series and, you know, say, like, did they follow? Did they not? It's always hard. I know a lot of people, like, bring it up right in the first episode, but you don't know. We don't know what characters are going to be brought forward to us. I'm excited to talk about it then.
0: I think I'd like to just kind of jump into these characters. What's your initial impression, the end of the episode, aside right because there does seem to be some questions about where jonathan is because he's left his phone at home his wife cannot find him the clouds of suspicion are already starting to roll in after she has an encounter with some really aggressive police officers but for the first like say 45 minutes of the episode what's your feeling what's your first impression about jonathan and grace fraser
1: they have a lovely home they have a beautiful lifestyle they both seem like very competent professionals They're funny. I like their relationship, the way that they joke around with each other, which we'll get into all that. But that was like my first impression. That's sort of just like my vague initial leap into them.
0: These are definitely two people who are living their best lives. I like the character of Grace. She is a total badass therapist. I don't know that I would personally want a therapist giving me the real talk that we see her give her patients because it will definitely probably make me cry. I am of a fragile brain, but I like (laughs) watching it, though. I mean, I like her calling, you know, putting her first client, that woman on the carpet and saying, listen, bitch, like you are seeing and, you know, you are the most discerning woman I know, except for when it comes to men. You put on Mm. them what you see and you jump in, you know, you jump in and never actually pay attention to what they're actually like. You just assume what they're like. I love that. And that's advice I think a lot of people could use.
1: Yeah. I think the idea of wanting something so badly that you project it onto whomever standing in front of you, when she actually said it out loud, I mean, I hope people actually hear her and like step back and be like, Oh shit. Do I do that? Because I think we all do.
0: Let's be frank. I mean, you are a blunt person and it's a, a thing that people, I think often tell you they find refreshing about you because everyone needs a blunt person in their life to not sugarcoat things, but tell you how it actually is because Especially in today's age, there's a lot of people who tell you what you want to hear. There's a lot of people who want to cushion things to make it more digestible. In the end, though, you're not really helping a friend if that's how you're going about their life, because eventually... They're going to get slapped by the cold, hard reality of life. I I loved watching her at work in this episode with that patient. And I loved the discussion with the married gay couple where she got right down the brass tacks that it wasn't about sex with Dennis, the third guy. It was about getting caught. It was about spurring Michael. I think both of these patients that we see her interact with in this episode are really interesting uh, mirrors on how a lot of people live their lives. I can't help but wonder if it's not going to be something that we need to keep in mind as we go through the series. And. And we, you know, continue to examine the Fraser's life.
1: Absolutely. I think that there was two nuggets that you just hit on there. One, the whole like projecting on the husband or spouse that you want them to be when they're really not. I love that thought. I think we should hang on to that. And that other one about doing something that you know you're going to get caught, But you're doing it to show your spouse that they can't control you, that this is something that that they can't micromanage about your life. There's something about that that I want to hang on to because I think both of those are going to come into play.
0: The other half of the Frasier household, Jonathan, Hugh Grant's character, I think he's a little harder to peg down. He is, I think, one of those classic older gentlemen who is all suave, all charming, charming to the point of being disarming. He's humorous, but it it comes out of his pores with such ease. You know, you don't even realize that you're a little bit turned on until he's already left the scene. (laughs) Hugh, Hugh Grant is not someone I've ever thought of as sexy, Hugh Grant has always, always been someone I've always thought of as charming.
1: Very charming. Very Very charming. charming. Yes. There is
0: an edge of sexuality to him, though, in this episode, isn't there? I I think uh, it's that he
1: says it. Okay, so that's the thing. There are plenty of men who are charming, right? And there are plenty of men who are sexy. But when you get someone who's charming and they're willing to say, like, are you dirty, Grace? Do you need me to put on my rubber glove? That's like a kinky level that mashes together those sexy, charming things that is very rare when you get to have both of those. I like the kink element of him. Let's add that in.
0: Yeah, when he said, "Put on your," let me put on my rubber gloves. Uh-huh. And, you know, I was
1: like,
0: Dr., "Whoa, Doctor Dr. Fraser's." And she's—I yes. mean, she's not saying no,
1: Jonathan, don't come in
0: here. She's—I mean,
1: she was like, "When are you getting in here already?" Yeah,
0: her <laughs> silence is like, "All right, go get your gloves." Like, we're yeah. going to do this. Yeah, I mean, even when he comes home in that in that scene and is crying, and then they fuck. It's so sexy, even though you've assumed something very bad has happened with his oncology patient, and it's, you know, it's a child, and that's very sad. But there is a bomb that she soothes him with by letting him enter her and move, and she's kissing his hand. It's so fucking exciting. I love their chemistry in this. Neither of these two people, and and I think I want to get into this, because neither of these two people are on their own, actors and actresses I've ever thought of, again, as sexy. Charming on his part, and I think she's beautiful, but I've never thought of Nicole Kidman as really sexy. I think together, they actually kind of sizzle in this episode and I think when Elaine is on the screen with Nicole Kim and with Grace I think there's fucking heat to, you know for Fahrenheit 451 without a doubt but on their own I've never really thought of them as sexy so I'm really enjoying these older versions of Nicole Kim and Hugh Grant because they're kind of doing it for me.
1: I think there's a comfort level in their own skin that is coming off incredibly sexy I think the two of them have chemistry that is undeniable again that that they're willing to, to talk about things that people only think about you know, when he says, like, let's just mm-hmm, find a bedroom mm-hmm. at the party, you know, that might be something that you want the, the cliche bedroom eyes kind of business. he just says, let's go. To, right. Let's go find a bedroom. Who doesn't want to hear that? Like, that's sexy, overt sexiness, like all over the place.
0: And even when he's like playing around with it, cause he because he doesn't just say, let's go find a bedroom. I mean, he, he pushes it. He's like, you know, in Suki's closet, in yeah. Suki's clothes. I I mean, me too. <laughs> I know. You know we'll both wear Englishman's
1: clothes. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'll wear them
0: too, Like make an Englishman's dream yeah. come true. Like, it's funny, but it's it's a real sexiness to it's like, to but And it
1: like goes another level, though, because it's not just sexy. It's not just looks. It's not just touches. No. When you add that layer of, I'm calling it kink, like when you actually yeah, yeah. say it out loud and you are willing to commit to the bit, if you will, I believe they would go have sex in the closet, you know? And I give yeah. Nicole Kidman a lot of credit and the writers a lot of credit that at least up to the point that you and I have seen, which is episode one. They have written her in a way that she doesn't act like how you would expect that, like, uptight. I'm on a committee. God, Jonathan. Oh, my friends are here. You're embarrassing me. Like all the typical shit. She says, like, you're bad. You know, and then just yeah. kind of teases. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like, no, like you've she, seen every yes. suburban housewife written the same. And I know she's not suburban, but it don't matter.
0: Even more so because they are a rich Upper East Side family. You very much expect her to say something like, "You're embarrassing in front of my friends." Mm-hmm. You know, you know, get a hold of yourself. But right. she doesn't. She she turns into it, and it makes it even tougher because one, it makes them a very believable happily married couple. Like so many rich, powerful type families of a certain age are always written as we're together only because of the money or because we've got a son. A circumstance are keeping us together. You believe that these two really very much enjoy each other. They enjoy each other's company outside the bedroom. They enjoy each other's uh, company inside the bedroom. They enjoy each other's company inside Suki's closet, mm-hmm. you know, and they're both into their fantasies and their kink, and I'm here for it. So
1: I'm not completely willing to say that they enjoy their each other's company all the time. What I'm willing to say is that they have obvious chemistry. There's something about about it when it is at that heightened place where there's almost a little danger to it because I don't think that they necessarily have that how do I want to say this because I know we saw them have some like basic conversations but almost all of their interactions are either a little extra funny or a little mm-hmm. extra a little extra serious or a little extra whatever they are heightened, right? They're Everything like, this, is heightened. there's something about them that has this intensity that is A-charged, very charged. Yeah. You know? It's very palpable, but I think that would go across the board. Like, I also think that when, you know, he tells like a half truth, everything's ramped up all the time with them.
0: There definitely seems to be a charged atmosphere, and and maybe I did over maybe I did extend my metaphor too much when I said that they're happy together all the time, because it did not escape my notice when they're talking about the very expensive tuition that they pay to Reardon, mm-hmm. the the little nugget drop that they actually in fact don't pay anything to Reardon, that it's her father who we learned is Do- Donald Sutherland plays Franklin, he's the one who's actually paying for Henry's education now. You know, Hugh Grant is a pediatric oncologist. She is a very successful therapist, it appears. These are people who are being paid very well, but they may not be being paid well enough to.
1: $50,000 tuition is high.
0: Yes, it's high for anything. It's particularly high, especially as someone who sends a, a child to private school. It is very expensive. That is a very expensive. I mean I know they're in New though.
1: York City and I understand all those kinds of things. And so everything's more. But you know, obviously this is a very exclusive situation right. because very few people could participate in in a tuition level that
0: high. One of the things I like about the show is that it was actually filmed in New York City, and I think that always adds another element to a vibe, to a feeling of a show. But there is something about the Upper East Side that doesn't get a lot of attention. You know, you hear about Manhattan and you hear about the wealth and the money and people are usually talking about the upper West side of Manhattan, the real old money, the, the, the gossip girl money from that rich school that all those rich kids went to. That's always the upper East side. Mm. This is very upper East old money. And that's where the real like wealth that goes back generations of Manhattan is. I love that. And I love that they, they play that all up because that house that they're living in, I'd be very curious to see whose name is on the title of that house. Mm. I don't think it's Hugh Grant's.
1: I bet it's not either, which is weird because he is, I mean, he is a doctor.
0: He's not a doctor. He's a pediatric oncologist. That is a that is one of the most specialized medicines there is. He is making a lot of money. He's
1: doing very well for himself, which which I think really needs to highlight the fact that clearly Grace, Nicole Kidman, we're going to have to start calling them by their character names because I'm going to start Grace quick. and
0: Jonathan. Grace and Jonathan. <laughs> Grace and Jonathan.
1: <laughs> and Franklin. <laughs>
0: And Henry the son.
1: Knowing that Grace's dad pays the bills there makes me feel like, okay, so clearly now we have a dynamic for their marriage, Uh that Franklin is definitely involved in their their lives, and also that Grace comes from money. It's not Jonathan's family paying for it, or they are not paying for it. And also, during that dinner party when we actually meet Franklin, when they're like, Franklin, Jonathan. It's clear the relationship that these men have.
0: Right. He, again, he is a successful doctor. Jonathan is. He travels in these circles of wealth. And yet he's kind of cucked to his father-in-law. That's gotta be a whole pride thing that is very hard to swallow. When it comes out that he pays the bills there's a little chill that comes in mm-hmm. their kitchen
1: mm-hmm. during
0: that scene. And Jonathan plays it off because humor is his is his go-to device. It is his deflecting device. It is his coping mechanism. It, As is sexuality
1: because yes. and I think that that's super important because
0: it's a weapon almost. It is you know. a, a weapon. Almost, weapon because his humor and his sexuality is He
1: uses items. Yeah, he uses his sexuality and the fact that most people won't say what he says out loud even if they feel that way they won't say it and we see it happen like if you take out the fact that he is overtly sexual with her and Mm -hmm. you just put in the parts where he's Essentially complaining about having to go to a school function, complaining about having to go to family obligations. If you kind of dumb down the writing, that's just standard shit, right? That's where the wife gets sick of it. And you have these, you're grating on my nerves with constantly whining about having to go to things. You could have, you could go all the way down to like married with children, just like base fighting, right? But Mm -hmm. it's the fact that he has these layers to his personality, as does she, that creates this, like, elevated conversation where you're still doing the same thing. You're still nagging and bitching. You're still coercing him to come to things. But you have that layer of sexuality and you have that layer of charm and, you know, will they, won't they. That keeps you way more engaged.
0: There's also an element here in the what what puts Grace and Jonathan together dynamic that I think we need to talk about because it's her friend circle also. We see... Grace and her friends a couple of times in this episode. We see them at the fundraising meeting. This is where we meet Elena for the first time. There there are no husbands present. We see them again gathered at the gala. And there are husbands around, but still not a whole lot of men. And Janelle Maloney's character, Sally, when Jonathan gets called away to go see his patient Shelby... You know, she, she one of the close friends, calls out the fact that, oh, what a great guy, you know, dealing with pediatric oncology and cancer. What a What a drag that has to be every day, and yet he does it with such humor. So there is an envy among her friends that I took to me anyway, that they look up to Grace because she has such a loving, caring husband who is dealing with kid cancer, one of the worst cancers there is, and yet has such a humor about him. And I think, unspoken... A sexuality about him, right? They all see it. They see him probably patting her ass and stuff. And, you know, if he had slid up her slit dress. I don't think she would have swatted him away. I don't think any of them would have been surprised. That seems to be their dynamic. There is a little bit of the I have the prize husband feeling that I'm getting also from this first episode. And maybe as a as a former husband anyway, it was something I was kind of thinking about. That's another dynamic of why are they together? Dad pays the bills. So what what is Jonathan bringing to the table that's keeping this successful woman i'm
1: gonna lean back into her therapy sessions a probably because she's projecting something on him that he really isn't (laughs) Mm -hmm. and then b my guess in this case is going to be dad is the controlling party in that second therapy session she married jonathan to prove to dad that he cannot control every move she makes
0: Oh, so he's he's like a bad boy outlet for her. I think so. Mm, I like that. I like the idea that she that Jonathan represents her her rebellion against yeah. her father, and maybe even in her a, own in a, in a controlled way.
1: Version of yeah, yeah, of definitely stepping out on her dad in terms of like loyalty mm-hmm. and all all the things that you have that weird daddy husband awkwardness, you know, where they both want to be the man in her life.
0: Before we move off of uh, kind of Grace and and Jonathan and you know I kind of set up the fact that I've never really looked at these two as being overtly sexual Hugh Grant and Nicole Kim in, but here there's that there is a there is a sizzle factor that I don't normally associate with them but Nicole Kim in, you know I know you watch Big Little Lies what's your take on her like sexy wise
1: so that's an interesting part about her again I kind of picked up on her back in Days of Thunder and Far and Away when I you know she was really this beautiful counterpart to Tom Tom Cruise. That's really how I mostly thought of her. Now I'm super aware that she did Moulin Rouge and other things, but for whatever reason, I never placed her in the category of this overtly sexual woman. She was beautiful and she had no issue with nudity. Like anytime she's walking across a room, her dress is gonna like spread open. Her bathrobe is gonna spread open. You're going to see her upper thigh. You're gonna catch a a glimpse of her hip or whatever, right?
0: We got we got almost entire side boob from her in that party <laughs> scene when she's walking boob. across the room. Yeah, like, that's, I mean. It, gorgeous her bare
1: breast is, but yeah, gorgeous, gorgeous. So that's the thing. She doesn't shy away from nudity. Yet in my mind, I don't think of her as that actress that comes on the stage and you're like expecting her to like pop open her her shirt so there's Mm -hmm. something that's interesting about her she manages to stay this little bit of a mystery for me which i think she totally brings to this role my real life feeling about her plays into grace completely because i think that grace herself is far more sexual than what we've seen on screen in episode one i think that she's got not just curiosity i think she has actual experience I think that she's willing to do a lot of different things that, you know, maybe, again, it's that intensity level of this couple. Many women think, but don't act on, don't say, don't do. Same, you know, it's the same with Jonathan. Many men think, I wish we could just find a bedroom, but they don't say it at the party. So this couple, the way that they are willing to take it to that next level – they both have that really interesting just extra about them.
0: It's interesting you bring that up because there's only two things I really think about Nicole Kim in movie-wise, where I clearly associate them with being like physically turned on by what she was doing on screen and by her. Because again, I don't I don't find her sexy normally. I find I think she's classically beautiful. I think she's objectively gorgeous, but I don't find her sexy. But they're in Eyes Wide Shut. A movie that is not great, I don't think, and I don't think it's held up entirely well. There's a sexiness about her because, as you're describing her here, she's this beautiful present that once you open it up, you realize there is so much more there. Mm -hmm. Once you undress her, once you unwrap her, there is a sexuality that is brimming and overflowing. It's like and right under they, the
1: surface though, which, which they both have, honestly, they both have that. And I think that that's where like, there's such a stark contrast to say Elena.
0: Yes. Who is all sexuality. I all think. the time. <laughs> all sexual, sexuality and, and, and vulnerability all the time. We get the first taste of that literally in our first time that we meet Elena at ladies tea, the fundraiser meeting, Caroline, you are a fundraising mom you are an active mom you have spent a lifetime I've fundraising sat around and...
1: these these exact tables um <laughs> you have known these women maybe i, I not do the know upper, these women maybe
0: not the upper east version of them but you know these women i know the
1: southern younger versions of them so where they came from money as well mm-hmm. we're a younger version but the circle of friends that i keep also have they're very similar to this on a younger southern version
0: so tell me how accurate one was the setup? And and how accurate was the reaction to Elena here? Because not only in the moment when she when she bears her breast and and they all literally stop talking and stare at her and the camera the camera does is doing some work here, right? Mm-hmm. I, the camera is heightening the mm-hmm. experience for all of us. But then there's the phone call. There's Sylvia's phone call. Lily Rob playing Sylvia.
1: Love her, love her, love her.
0: There's the call to Grace afterwards. Being like, that's so weird. And she and she talks about it, how it was passive aggressive, which is funny because that's actually how I took it. Mm-hmm. And later and Grace calls it even hostile when she's in bed t- talking to Jonathan about it. How accurate a depiction was this? And have you ever had an experience with a mom from a different kind of background than than the rest of the friends come into a group? Did any of this ring really true of, of how it would play out?
1: Yes, actually very true. The actual setup of, you know, everybody sitting around the table talking about things to bid on, joking around like you should bid your husband like shit like that absolutely, that's almost verbatim from meetings I've been in. The move that Elena does when it comes to breastfeeding, which I do want to make clear because breastfeeding itself is not sexual, breastfeeding itself is not anything that any woman around that table would have stopped and looked at. What was a little bit surprising, or I guess for for myself, what I haven't witnessed, I'll be clear, is someone who Takes their shirt completely off their body. That's unusual because if your mm-hmm. baby's that small, for the most part, your stomach doesn't look that great. I know we get full body shots on Elena. Her body is beautiful. This baby is very young. And I don't just mean like a stretch mark, I mean, there's like no looseness about her body at all. Most women would be self conscious about their midsection with a baby so young. So they wouldn't take their shirt completely off. There is an entire market of things, including like Nike has the sports bra, where most bras you just undo the little tab like in the front and just expose just the nipple area. So there's so many things that make exactly how she does it surprising to the women at the table. So when she's when she does that, perhaps you could look at it as a class situation where it's like maybe she doesn't have access to all these different fashion options that allows her to breastfeed. Sure. However, she also has beautiful a beautiful body, and she isn't self conscious about it. And she is feeling very like this is me. Take it for what I am. Even the way she takes her breast out is like it's, it was almost like a magic trick. You have something like um, under like a sheet, and you yank it off, yeah. and it's like a reveal. She does it like that. It's like boom. Like it just like happens. And it's like again, no one does that. If you're if you're Even if she was going to change in front of that room of people, there's ways that you do that that aren't that, like, big reveal moment, you know? Right.
0: Her breast very much is a ta-da moment when it comes out. Yes, I think all of the possibilities you've laid out, maybe she doesn't have access to, to maternity bras. Maybe she hasn't been in this scenario before maybe she doesn't have a lot of female friends that she sits around with and so is in expert at how to broach the subject of breastfeeding but i think that's all bullshit <laughs> i think she is making a statement here the eye contact that she makes around the table that in particular, the eye contact that she is making with Grace is all very pointed it It spoke to me almost like she was daring them to say something to her to the other woman around the table. I think to grace, it was kind of sexual it, it it's a weird thing to do, and I think that's a weird move to do because it's your baby, and breastfeeding is not sexual in its nature, especially when it's a baby attached to it. There's a close up of the camera yes to the baby two times
1: face. they zoom in two times
0: and and a lot of the camera work that we see in this episode make me think that it's supposed to be grace's kind of pov or Ooh. or grace's thought process i mean we have a couple of close ups of her eye like very close to her eye rapid movement all of that is telling me that there is there is something going on here some unspoken thing going on here between towards grace and maybe grace back to her but in the overall and i want to ask you what you're feeling with this i did not agree with Sylvia, that it was passive aggressive. I did not agree with Grace that it was hostile because of the money talk about, I, you know, she when she talks to Jonathan, she says that it was vulgar what we were talking about, the money, the wealth, the, the, the excess that we were talking about seemed vulgar, and so that Elena was reacting to that in a hostile way. No. That's not how I took it.
1: I think that Grace was just spinning possibilities, really, when she says that, because I understand, and, and she was even maybe telling the audience Like, hey, you know what? Take it from this point of view. She is a natural mom, you know, has young babies. And here we are talking about just sort of like this frou-frou fluff. And here she is like in the game, in the struggle with a little baby. And so when she takes her breast out the way she does, she's kind of being like, y'all are talking about shallow shit when we should be talking about what the children need. Like me, I'm breastfeeding my baby. Like it's like that, right? It's like so she is trying to kind of give the audience some Things to think about. Like, well, why else would she be doing this? So all the characters serve to throw out possibilities. Over here you've got Sylvia saying, look, I think it's passive-aggressive. I think she's got some sort of beef with you. I think there's something going on here.
0: It seems very pointed at Grace, doesn't it? It
1: does. It absolutely does. But here's the thing when she's walking down the hall the way she keeps petting the baby's head first of all even that was weird i understand you know you want to be cuddly with your baby but she was being like very like my precious in a like a really kind of gross way mm-hmm
0: almost like she expected them to steal the baby yes she was holding the baby close to her almost like she felt threatened among like these these lioness women it's
1: also the type of thing that you do like when you're pregnant and maybe mm. when you want other mm. people to be all jealous you kind of like rub your belly wherever you put your hands as a woman is where everyone's going to look. So if you start playing with your necklace, if you start rubbing your belly, if you put your hand on your hip whatever you're going to do, everyone's eyes are going to where your hand is.
0: Literally, as you were saying that my eyes were picturing those body parts
1: and you knew exactly what I was doing. You knew what that meant. Look at my cleavage. Mm -hmm. That meant look at my ass. That meant look at my pregnant belly. Like, Every move that a woman does with her hands is often that. So when she's rubbing the baby's head incessantly, it was like, look at this baby. Now, here's the thing. I saw that scene at around the same time you saw that scene. And I texted over to you, that baby's Hugh Grant's baby. Oh, my God. That baby is not that. Oh, they know something about that baby. Now, I've got nothing to go on here at this point, except for that there was something weird about that baby and the way she was just like touching it and caressing it. Do you recall that like, that's Hugh Grant's baby. That's going to end up being that that her baby.
0: I do. And when I rewatched it for notes, so a little process here, dear listener, is I typically watch an episode once to watch it and kind of let it wash over me. And then I watch it again and I take notes. That's just how I usually approach recaps uh, for the shows that we do. And I did that here. And so I had that in my head when I went sat down to take notes for this episode. Because that was in my head, I, I caught a line I missed the first time where Nicole Kimmon bends over to mule over the baby and she mar- remarks about its eyelashes and she makes a she makes a note about how how gorgeous the baby's eyelashes are that is not a line that i picked up the first time that's not a thing I would normally note about a person, especially a baby now, I know you are big into eyelashes, <laughs> and so I was curious if you caught that line, if, if that bumped for you, if that maybe helped inform that feeling, maybe even subconsciously for you that it was Hugh Grant's baby because I think that's an interesting take, and again there's nothing to prove that at this point no, not at but all, I definitely, but I, I felt definitely that vibe, saw right? why you, I definitely got the second watching why you felt that vibe Yeah, sure.
1: and, and just the way that she was examining that baby with her eyes, no Nicole Kidman I felt like there was just this like she was doing that thing like like in a futuristic movie where you like scan the body like up and down right A a
0: subconscious attraction to the baby that she couldn't probably even understand herself
1: I'm gonna submit she has a son and often siblings look alike. And so I'm saying, like, if you do that, like, no, 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 And you, like, look up and down and you're like, that looks familiar. That looks familiar. That looks familiar. The little synapses in her mind are, like, making connections. What is she seeing? Why is she so drawn in to this baby? Now, we could play a whole game of, well, these are women who have, you know, middle schoolers. A lot of time, this is a make or break moment for women. If your kid is in middle school, especially if it's your youngest, that is the exact time you do one of two things. If you were staying at home, that's that make-or-break moment. Do you go back to work or do you have that another kid? That is like the last possible time you're doing that. There's You could look at it like that. Like, well, maybe she's thinking, man, I just – I really want a little baby and Henry's finally getting big and I feel like, you know – I don't need to be after him the same way anymore. There was both that layer for me of like that, like lustiness after the baby. And also that baby looks awfully familiar.
0: I am going to break the rule that I said I would not do at the top of the episode. And I'm going to talk about the book here. Uh Uh-oh. Fast forward about 40 seconds if you don't want to hear about the book, but only because you have hit a nail so hard on the head, I feel a need to acknowledge it. In the corresponding scene in the book, there is not only a mention of the eyelashes, Nicole Kimmons' character in the book, Race remarks to it's malaga in the book not elena your baby's eyelashes are gorgeous they look just like my son henry's
1: oh my lord
0: you have hit a nail on the head just in your describing and i know you have not written have the book. Not. I, I, I don't even know that you knew it was a book before we started talking I didn't. about it <laughs> and so you you literally verbatim have stated a, a line from the book from this scene, nice uh which which the show has omitted obviously to to have some suspense and and in laying that groundwork, but you picked up on a vibe. I think that is just coming off of Elena and Grace that I definitely noticed on the second viewing. I did not pick up on the first. I would advise everyone rewatch the scene. If you've watched the episode once rewatch it again from that, from that point of view. And I think you're going to see it a little bit
1: differently. I think so too, for sure.
0: The companion scene to this is the next day, in the gym, and we know it's the next day because we have jumped back in time two days earlier. So there's a next day in the gym where Nicole Kimmin is dressed. She is finished. She has finished her workout, and Elena, in her very beautiful body, comes sauntering up, full bush in view. Her breasts are out, her flat stomach, and she stands very close in front of Nicole Kimmin and begins to thank her for being so nice and inclusive to her. She has such a load of questions. She says, "How can I help?" As she sits down next to Grace. This was a total power play move to me. It, it it seemed engineered on Elena's part to be as intimidating as she could be and using her sexuality the same way that Jonathan seems to be weaponizing his humor and sexuality. Elena seems to be very much weaponizing her sexuality here to keep Grace on her heels that's how i took this whole scene it's very uncomfortable to be dressed in a gym locker setting and have someone come talk to you when they're fully naked i think most people react in a way that they feel very disarmed by it and i think grace reacts that way here and i think that's exactly what elena was going for
1: there are two questions that you can ask somebody to instantly get them back on their heels you can say are you scared to an adult person mostly men And they are instantly going to puff up and say, no, I'm not scared. No one ever says I'm scared. Not the first time. You have to ask them like five times. But the second question is the one that she asks Grace when she says, do I unnerve you? There is nobody that I can think of that would be like, yes, in fact, you unnerve me. You make me feel uncomfortable. Nobody says that. Everyone says the same thing. No, 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 no. Of course not. So you immediately like break down their defenses because they are quick to be like, how can I be more accommodating to you if you're feeling like I was unnerved? It's a superpower move. And again, when we're talking about how charm and sexuality is used, that is actually a charming thing to say, to behave as if you're this vulnerable little bird and you're actually, again, saying something that no one would say out loud. I'm picking up on the fact that I seem to make you uncomfortable. Do I unnerve you? She's just like, ugh. (laughs) <laughs> no 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 of course not of course not of course not that scene was super manipulative obviously the whole like put your pubic hair into my eye line is like what is happening right now and adding that layer of sexuality and like i think you want me to have my pubic hair in your face grace like that's the insinuation it is like Screaming it loud and clear.
0: I think it's interesting because you're picking up on the part of the scene that we don't see initially. You you are you are going back to when she revisits the scene after she has the session with Michael and Robert. Now she has her coat on. Elena still naked as the day she's born. And she comes up to her and says, uh, "And she says, did I unnerve you? She says, uh, did I do something wrong? I seem to have unnerved you. She doesn't say that in the first scene we get. And this this is going to bring me to a question that I want to close the episode with about Grace as a reliable narrator. I think you're 100% right. I think Elena is very much in control of what she's doing here. One, using her vulnerability effectively, but also using, I think she's definitely using her sexuality here in in a way oh, yes. to, keep, to keep Grace unnerved. But there's also kind of like a desire about her, though, too, which is going to I think I want to take I want to get to the gala because I think this is a really important scene overall for the dynamic of this show. The dynamic between between Grace and Jonathan, the dynamic between Grace and Elena and just who these characters are. Grace is amused by the largesse of this apartment. Right. But she doesn't seem she doesn't seem uncomfortable with it. Even her friends seem a little bit unnerved at how lavish this apartment is. But not Grace. Grace seems just kind of amused by all of the wealth surrounding her, but very comfortable with it. And there's something to be said about being comfortable around money, because most people are uncomfortable around large amounts of wealth because they're not used to it. They don't know how to act. They become very self-conscious. They become very aware of every single one of their movements. Are they breathing too loud? Do they look fat? Do they look okay? Do they fit in here? I don't fit in here. I need to go. That's kind of what we see Elena experience. She seems very overwhelmed by the entire idea of a a glass of water being auctioned for $1,000. She seems very unnerved by all of this, very much on her heels.
1: I think also to add to that layer, though, I would also add the fact that while maybe from a man's point of view, it would be very exciting to be surrounded by men. If you noticed, all the other women were surrounded by other women. They were talking to other women. They were they were a part of the group. She was over on the side looking at the group and looking at specifically Grace, but she was surrounded by men. And so when you talk about being overwhelmed, and I think I've used that word it's overwhelming when men won't get out of your face and it's a lot. And and when you feel like you can see the women group talking over there and all you want to do is be a part of the crowd. I think that alone would make someone cry.
0: It's a nice switch for the normal trope because all of, Grace's girlfriends are picking up on—they're picking up on two things. They're picking up on the fact that Elena is eye fucking Grace from across the room again,
1: or at least let's not say i fucking because let's be let's be thoughtful about the various meanings. Mm, okay, at least she well, has like laser focus on her, right? Yes. So that's okay, important sure. because I do think I do think there's a layer of eye fucking. Don't get me wrong, but I think there's other layers to this too. She wants to be a part of what Grace is doing, maybe even be Grace.
0: Yes, I think she very much wants to be not necessarily in Grace. Friend group, but she wants to be friends with Grace. She wants to be in Grace's orbit. I think that's I think that's one thing. Or
1: even be Grace, a la single white female. Mm,
0: sure. I, I see I didn't really get that vibe. I didn't get a malice vibe from her. I got more of in this episode, I got more of a I want to be in your orbit. I want to be fancy like you. I want to be I want to be someone who carries themselves the way you carry them because you have achieved you have the man you have the house you have the husband you have the friends uh, you, you have the friends you have the kid you have a life that you know i aspire to you know we see her cry right when fernando uh her husband alba fernando Alves, you know uh, spoons her from behind and she kind of weeps into her pillow in between the two days right the night after the ladies tea And the gala, she kind of cries herself into her pillow, you know, like, and I, I, all of that very much spoke to me, like, she has, she is on, she's knocking on the door of the life that Grace leads, but she is not yet through the door of the life that Grace leads, but she very much wants to be. So I think that's going on here, but the, I think it's very interesting that Grace's friends are all seizing upon the fact that, my God, that, that, that poor girl is surrounded by these men who they know are not her husband but she is now being like set upon by that but none of them go none of them go over there and help her they just assume that she either is liking it or appreciating it or are somehow jealous of the attention that those men get you know you get the distinct impression that all of her friends would not mind a group of men young men uh, surrounding them that's an interesting thing though that's an interesting dynamic because i don't definitely don't get the impression from elena's face that she is feeling super uh, you know happy about all of those men. right
1: i think that elena has a vibe though that everybody picks up on and here's the thing she may have that vibe that she in, in a very unintentional way but she has this sexy come talk to me kind of vibe and she is and she is if you saw her in a crowd you would you would take a second glance the women in the group they're not necessarily jealous they're not necessarily styling themselves in a way that is like quite the same way. So I feel like they're sort of like resigned to what their situation is, and she's coming in in like a more youthful, like has this glow about her that people are really attracted to.
0: She, much like Marilyn Monroe, just oozes sexuality with everything she does, everything she says. She's got those big eyes that look at you; they kind of bore into you. That they, they they make your body stir and she you're right may not even be aware of it it's just something there are some people who are just sexually charged and don't aren't even aware of it
1: i can also say that between the these layers of women there's also a very distinct personality trait that is sort of like that Bambi-esque, big-eyed thing that you just said that, like, I look very vulnerable. And then these men are very attracted to that, like, all stand by your side, right? These women are – the other women are professional, confident, mature women who aren't going to play that game. They're not going to play damsel in distress.
0: They couldn't if they wanted to.
1: Maybe, but they aren't going to. And so, so sure. there's no one – none of these women are going to come to her defense – because they're like, hey, you're, you're playing the Bambi card tonight. I, pff, you don't need me, you know. And that's how most women feel. Like you can turn it on and turn it off if you want to or you don't. I, I feel like, you know, Nicole Kidman and her crew, they could probably do it. They're the bosses in the room, you know. So they are not putting off that vibe. They're the committee people. They're the ones who did this entire fundraiser. So there's no vibe about them that is going to come off as vulnerable or in any way helpless.
0: I'll give you that. Back to a focus on Elena, though, and I think we spent a lot of time drilling into the pathology and psychology of Grace and Jonathan, but I think Elena's state of mind becomes super important here. She, She says she wants to be involved. She has that loaded question in the gym of how can I help? She shows up sans husband at this fundraiser where... She has to know she's gonna feel like a fish out of water, but she's wearing maybe one of the sexiest dresses I've ever seen on a woman ever in my life, with with the plunging neck- necklace into her into her décolletage. It, it is stunning. It looks so good on her. You completely understand why she gets surrounded by men right away. But it all adds up to kind of overwhelming her, and she winds up running to the bathroom to have herself a good cry, and then and then leaving, right? Because Grace follows her in. Great. Why is Grace following her? She follows her to the bathroom, then she follows her to the elevator, then she gets into the elevator. I don't think she she's inserting herself. I don't think she followed her to the bathroom. When
1: she walked up to the first restroom, there was a line already, and that's the woman kind of shrugs and is like, "Sorry, like there's a line." So she sought out the second bathroom, which was through the closet, and so that was like their actual master bathroom which was probably not the guest bathroom so when she steps in there and elena comes out of the stall i do not think she expected to see her in there oh that might be that's that's actually right so then as they're having that conversation you know she is saying i'm overwhelmed this is too much i you know i don't know what to do with myself like that kind of thing and also to be clear grace offers her support and assistance she's like if you ever want to talk We can do that.
0: For free. Yeah. Which which comes off very clumsy. Well,
1: it did come off very clumsy. I think it's important that she said for free because she takes it like it's a money thing. Elena takes it like a professional thing. Meaning she didn't come in here as a peer who said, Hey, fellow woman, I see you are upset. Do you want to go have coffee and talk sometime like friends? When she says free, what that signals to Elena is... Oh, she would talk to me as a professional therapist. We would not be talking as friends, which is what I want to be. You, do you think so? Yes. Oh, yes. see,
0: well, well, I agree not as friends, but I actually took it more – I took it that Elena would have taken it the same way that that Grace becomes uncomfortable about, that you couldn't afford my rates. So I won't charge you, but but it's related though. It's related though that I, you're going to be on my couch in my office talking, not going for right. Coffee and
1: that's important though because right. that that harkens back to that conversation in bed when Grace was telling Jonathan, "Oh, we were being vulgar about art and money and stuff." Mm-hmm. And we uh, there's no part of that that I really think that that's why Elena was uncomfortable. I really think that there's something different going on there. I agree. Same in the bathroom. She brings up money. She thinks she's made Elena uncomfortable about the money. I don't think it's about the money. I think it's about the fact that. Oh, you're you're suggesting a professional relationship where I want a personal relationship. So I think she comes right. out of the bathroom crying because that was like her inroads moment. You know, this was the fundraiser that she's sitting on the committee. The committee's gonna disband. There's not gonna be more committee meetings right coming up next. So now she doesn't have any more ins. This was her last shot to get in with Grace.
0: There's not gonna be any more committee meetings for Alina. Okay.
1: All right. But you know separate. what I mean and- though. You could see how <laughs> That was like her last chance, though, was at the fundraiser, was to get Grace's attention.
0: This was her big Mm -hmm. moment, and she got an offer for professional therapy. Instead of friendship uh, or something
1: more or a relationship of some sort, a personal relationship. But she's got one more card to play. Yes. And Grace
0: Grace follows her. Grace follows her out of the bathroom, tries to distance herself, tries to say – no more but then can't
1: she, she sees, sees her, her crying. at the elevator well so okay here's well, she, another thing well she sees her leaving she sees her crying awesome. i think that's what gets her i think she sees her crying and so that's my point of view now you could say she sees her leaving and so she's got another motivation but for me she sees her crying and she knows she was just talking to her in the bathroom so the fact that she runs over and she's like oh gosh what what now like what is happening what is what is the matter that is like what i think leads them in and offering the car i think is was very well i'm going to say now that we know that elena is dead at the end of this episode i'm going to put some layers on that and be like is she offering her a car because she wants to know where elena lives exactly i don't know but she seems to be offering the car because she's just being nice
0: at this point that is the point of view that we're supposed to have grace doesn't worry about money or at least we haven't seen grace worry about money Or the fact that she has a literal car just on standby, ready to take her wherever she needs to be. You wouldn't think about the fact that maybe I live in Harlem and I don't want you and your fancy driver taking me to my home. Like, there's a shame... Aspect related to it I think that's all What we're supposed To take from here You know Elena Elena, You know Demurs You know She refuses Politely the car And she says It's easier for me Just to take the subway home Is but that true Though that.
1: Mike Though Asking cause Because you're A New York City guy Would it actually Be faster for her To just take the subway To Harlem Than it would be To have a driver
0: Presumably they're On the Upper East Side Where Like in around Near where they live And where the school mm-hmm. is Harlem and the Upper East Side Are connecting neighborhoods I mean The Upper East Side Goes from for several, like probably forty blocks or so, but then you're into Harlem. No, it's probably not faster. actually. Okay, so good to know because uh, that's at what I. Nighttime, was nighttime beginning. in the city on the Upper East Side, you could get up the avenues pretty quickly. Okay. I, I think it was more of a shame thing, like, but a shame thing. And there are there are parts of Harlem. Harlem has been has been kind of gentrified. Harlem, in reality, is not the Harlem that you hear about, like in Bonfire or the Vanities or or all of the the tropes about in Manhattan and Harlem that it's this bad place. It's not. It's actually, there are many lovely parts of Harlem now, and it's it's a place that you can, you know, it's it's a wonderful neighborhood now in a lot of places. But it still represents the fact that I think, again, for Elena, it's this uneven stations of life. It, the idea that she would send her driver into Harlem, I think, makes Elena uncomfortable. Like, I don't want you to know where I live. Not because I don't want you to know where I live, because, but because of, of, of some unspoken, subconscious, instinctual shame aspect to it. It's, I think, probably the reason, honestly, I think there's a reason why Fernando, her husband, is not at this party. She wants to go live in their world. She doesn't want them coming into her world, if that makes sense.
1: It does make sense to me. I also think that it tips the viewer's hand that perhaps Grace may be a little bit of a controlling person, that she may have her own control issues because she offers the card to Jonathan as well. When you do that, to me, you could say, wow, what a kind woman. But you can also say, what an amazing way to keep tabs on everybody.
0: (laughs) Sure. and, And I think as the series go on, that may actually, you know, have more weight to it. But I think right now... From what we know, I think she's just being – I think she's just trying to offer the resources she has available readily at her disposal. You know, I can't really make this woman feel better. I don't really know what the issue is, but she's going to go home. Maybe I can at least give her my car. But we got to talk about that kiss, though.
1: What did that kiss mean to you?
0: I don't know. No, I want to know you do
1: know. Come on.
0: When you've added up the episode, I think there is the hard eye contact during the breastfeeding scene where it added a sexual element to it that I would not have expected. There is the gym scene, the, the very intentional, I'm going to be naked and talk to you and put put my body in your eyeline. There is a sexual aspect to, to Elena pointed at Grace. She has put her sexual lighthouse towards Grace's face. And I think Grace... This is again unwrapping the present and unleashing and un- some of her, her simmering sexuality. I think there's a part of Grace that is kind of into what she feels Elena is throwing. I down. do too.
1: It does. It does feel like that.
0: When she gets that kiss and she, I mean, they even do a good job of like making her cheeks a little bit flush when she cuts out of the elevator. I, I would be, I would be very surprised if she exits that elevator. She's got some flushed cheeks. She goes and she stands by Jonathan. My guess is she's very turned on at, at that point and, and and confused.
1: Physiologically turned on.
0: Physiologically, cl- uh, yeah, t- I think she's physiologically, <laughs> biologically, I think very turned on without being any more graphic. But but I think she's also confused. I, I am feeling things, but I don't understand why I'm feeling them. But I'm also not closing the door on them either. I think there's a lot going on after that. That's kind of part of what Elena is trying to do here. Again, it's all of the... Keeping so keeping someone you have targeted on their heels, kissing them is a very way, good, very good way to do that. No matter what the gender, you know matchup is. It is. Kissing someone unexpectedly is a good way to keep them. Well, on and their it's heels. a way to
1: have high ground, right? It's a way to control the situation because you're the one that did it, and and you know you're going to knock them back on their heels when you do it. So it is taking somebody who appears very vulnerable, very like you know easily to intimidate, and yet here she is intimidating Grace, unnerving Grace, if you will. I want to talk about Henry for a couple of minutes because I think that both Henry and Miguel are both two characters that could be overlooked in terms of who they are, what they represent, and what we're going to learn from through their actions and their dialogue. Miguel is Elena's son and... He actually starts off our whole episode. He is the one that discovers her body. Now, there's a couple parts to that that I want to ask you. What does it say about Miguel's family life that he questions dad as to where Elena is and is so inclined to actually go seek her out himself, needs to lay eyes on her?
0: Oh, I think it's a huge red flag. I think there's also a barely disguised anger simmering off of Fernando, her husband, that I think is probably also putting up red flags for Miguel that he feels a need to go do that. So it seems to be accepted that mom is an artist of some ty- of some sort and does work late nights, maybe overnights, even occasionally at her studio, but, it seems very off to Miguel that his mom would not be there to help get him on the bus and get his day started, not be there to feed the baby. All of these things to Miguel, I think, seem like giant red flags to the point where he just needs to see his Well, mother.
1: and we know that, too, because it has been discussed throughout this episode that Elena walked him to school every day and actually sat outside for a good period right, of the she day. She wants
0: to be in that world, right? I start, so the right, fact that, that
1: she's right. not there to take him to school is obviously going to be alarming. So we're starting to learn, like, a lot about their. Family dynamic. He's a smart kid, you know, that he isn't just going to, like, let it go and just, like, hop on the bus. Like, he is somebody who's going to, like, think that through. I like that about this.
0: I like that about it, too. And I like – and they made him a fourth grader, right? So he's at an age where he is going to have – and he's a fourth grader in, in Manhattan, So growing up and going to school in Manhattan is a whole experience, I think, different than probably a lot of experiences kids have around the country. Going to school in New York City is, when I was in seventh grade, I was 12, 13 years old, I was taking the city bus for 20 minutes, 25 minutes with adults, adults that were not related to my family or to my school. I have a very unfunny, but kind of funny in retrospect story about a guy coughing and saying he had tuberculosis as he got off the bus. Like I was on my way to school when that happened, you know, I got tuberculosis. That was, that's part of growing up in the city. You're negotiating being around adults who, you know, there is a safety net that is taken away that a lot of kids I think don't have. So I think a fourth grader in Manhattan is going to be of a tougher stock, of a of a more street-savvy stock. So I like that they didn't downplay that. He is worried about his mom. It feels wrong to him. He goes and seeks her mm-hmm.
1: out.
0: He also seems kind of like a gentle boy, He
1: does. Too. He has, like, a soft soul to me. Why do we get that from him? We barely know him, but I see a really soft eyes. It's
0: because he's got a round face. Yeah,
1: so it's not it's- unlike his mom. He's got this... Big Bambi eyes that are, like,
0: it's re- really big sweet. Big Bambi eyes. He's got the same kind of round face as Elena does. It's really good casting, mm-hmm. actually, because Dad, Fernando, has a very hard face. He has a very angular face. It's a very hard face. Elena and Miguel have very round faces. They have very soft faces that you just want to trust. You just want to hug yeah. them, and you don't even know yes. why both of them are like that and you do not get that vibe from fernando the, from let's
1: that. head over to henry because i think that he is a great kid character that also is well written and really drew me in a lot to him he is the as he he's in middle school i don't remember did they say mm-hmm. s- fifth
0: grade i think he's a year older i think he's a no year he's in middle older.
1: school they,
0: Oh, is it mm-hmm. middle school? when oh, they're then.
1: doing the detective conversation she says i don't think that they know each other he's in middle school and miguel's in fourth grade That's when that separation in their age comes out.
0: So the actor playing him, Noah Jupe, is actually 15 years old.
1: I loved Henry's relationship with Jonathan. Like, that was one of the moments that I was like, I really like these two together. There's a lot going on there. I like their banter. Mm -hmm. But I could also tell that there was a, a distinct, you think you know me, but you don't kind of feel. Why do I say that? Because things like... Jonathan, which I love, the moment when he impre- impersonates Nicole Kidman's voice to be like, "Are you sure oh you're not God. projecting?" That was so funny. Well, he, well, oh he does my God. when he
0: does that, right. Hugh Grant doing an American accent is and very, it was very
1: Nicole funny. Kidman's voice that he was doing like right. It was
0: Hugh Grant doing Nicole Kidman's American accent. Very, it's very, very, very good.
1: Funny. And so when that yes. happened, I felt like when he suggests that perhaps Henry is complaining about the teacher or saying anything because maybe he actually wants to quit the violin henry is so quick to be like that's not it at all i love playing violin like there's this like a little edge that's a little bit like you think you know what i'm about and you don't and there's also a questioning about jonathan and who he is from henry it comes through conversations between henry and grace about the dog and there's that real sense of like is dad actually allergic to dogs a real distrust there that's in there. There's something simmering between these two guys that are very like it looks on the surface to be this great Banterry relationship, but when you dissect it, it's like there's some m- not real trustworthy words happening here.
0: Your first point is the one that really stuck with me the idea of you think you know me, but you don't really know me. And Henry, and I think that works because Henry is older. So Miguel. At fourth grade, you're going to know everything about Miguel, right? There's not a whole secret life of a fourth grader. A kid who is in seventh, eighth grade, there's a whole lot of stuff going on in that life that parents, even cl- even parents close to their kids. I mean, it looks like Jonathan and Henry walked to school mm-hmm. together, like the same way that Elena and walks Miguel to school every day, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. It seems that Jonathan walks Henry to school every day. And you get a lot of bonding time. You find out a lot about your kid then. I take my son to school often. I pick him up every day. I learn a lot about his day and his inner working, his dynamic with his friends in those conversations that I wouldn't otherwise be privy to. So I think Jonathan probably knows his son better maybe than even Grace does but there's a whole lot of things going on in Henry's life that Jonathan can't possibly know because his son hasn't told him and the same way he doesn't know Henry doesn't know about his father this very traumatic experience with the dog and the and the and and being blamed and the reason he doesn't have a relationship with his family like that's a lot of information Grace gives her son about his father that he had no
1: idea. I really like zeroed in on that dog conversation because for me, I felt like when this, the specific moment when Henry delves in and says, what type of dog was it? Oh, Henry, you could be a little investigator yourself because she is completely caught off guard. And she's like, "Mm, uh, Mm, I think it was a small dog. Yeah. Oh, shattered the situation. Like, oh shit!
0: You would know. Right? You, if you would know, that story... know,
1: or you would say, "I don't know the dog. I don't know what type of dog it was, but its name was Buster." Whatever. You might not know the type of dog. You but... would have. Ah. You would have
0: facts. You would know the entire story. And if you are gonna, if you are gonna tell your kid your husband's entire like the secret shame story that mm-hmm. he has, you are gonna know all the facts. You are not gonna not know some basic things like kind of dog. Or Can we hate. hit pause on um, that too?
1: Why are you telling dad's secret shame story?
0: Well, that was my issue with it was, like, there's a reason why uh, Jonathan hasn't told this to his son. Yeah. It's a very personal story. My family blamed my, for me for killing my family dog as a child.
1: It felt weird. It It felt like it also revealed a dynamic be- between Grace, Jonathan, and Henry. That is very, like... Don't tell dad that I told you this. That kind of business that you're like, wait, what? Why are you telling the kid that? Like, it's just, there was something odd.
0: Something odd, but also it kind of goes to a little bit, like I was talking about Miguel. Kids that grow up in the city... I think, and I think this is real, I don't think this is just a TV thing, and you don't, though you do see it in TV, kids who grow up in a city do tend to track much older than they actually are, and adults forget that sometimes and treat them more like peers than kids, and that's an issue, and I think that may be what's at work here. I mean, Grace, we know, is blunt. She she doesn't actually sugarcoat things. We've seen this professionally. It almost seems like that wall of parents are supposed to sugarcoat things and lie to their kids sometimes kind of falls down here. And but it's not her secret or story to That's tell. That's my
1: main thing. Is that she? He's, that he's was a big chosen, issue for me. Was they obviously it was. have a relationship, you know, between Jonathan and Henry? If he's chosen not to tell him, why do you think it's your place to tell? That's the main thing for me.
0: All right. So uh, after the party. Jonathan says he got called away uh, because he has to go take care of a patient. And we also know he's leaving early the next morning for a symposium for a convention, uh, an oncology convention in Cleveland. The next day, Elena is found dead. We see over the course of the day, Grace trying to get a hold of Jonathan. She cannot. She is getting more frantic or more... Annoyed sounding, more angry sounding, more put out sounding as she's leaving voicemails throughout the day because she can't get a hold of him. He's not calling back. She eventually finds his cell phone in their house. Oh, my God,
1: Mike. I mean, this, what?
0: That's a big fucking red you flag. No matter Jesus what Jesus Lord,
1: because you know no, no one's going anywhere without a cell phone, okay? No one is. Not so in so if day there's day one age. in the nightstand st- night drawer, he's got another one in his pocket.
0: Also weird, your husband is going to Cleveland and you don't know what hotel he's staying at? I found that very strange. I I don't know that I would ever have let my spouse go somewhere or, or me go somewhere and not tell my spouse where I was going to be. God forbid there was... Uh, an emergency yeah. that I needed to get a hold of you or you needed to get a hold of me. Something happened with Henry. You don't know what ho- – you know how many hotels there probably are in Cleveland? A lot because she calls them When all. that was
1: happening, my heart was beating so much and the camera work on her eyeball that's like going back and forth, back and forth. It's like jittering around. I was like, oh my god.
0: The eyeball shot is very yes. it, it reminded me of like the breastfeeding scene like there's some there are some choice there are some camera choices made in this series that are very unnerving. The eyeball is definitely what
1: you could feel the nerves though and I mean so did I when when they were like, okay, finally here's Jonathan and then there's a woman that answers the phone and you're like, oh oh my God, we've totally busted him and then it's like an American guy who comes on the line you're like, oh God, okay, no, that wasn't it. really good little red right. herring moments. they're small but really, really good.
0: And it's so funny, too, because then she sees that she hears this guy's voice and knows it's not her husband, but she still asks him, like, Jonathan Frazier, <sighs> like, as if it's going to all of a sudden morph into Hugh Grant. Right. I thought it was actually a nice little touch that makes no sense, but the kind of thing that you would probably say. You probably in that really moment, do, yeah.
1: Just to, like, just to check your own self.
0: Yeah, just be like, is this Yeah, episode? yeah. Like, does he actually sound like that? Yeah, so I actually thought that was a nice little moment. Something we're going to need to talk about in the coming episodes. There are two police officers investigating the the death of Elena. They're super aggressive with Grace out of the gate. We see them asking questions of the kids. We see them asking questions of Grace's friends. And they're not really hitting very hard with any of those people. They get to Grace, and I feel like they are super aggressive with her
1: out of the gate. Yeah, especially actually going into her house versus having conversations on the steps of the school. You know, actually coming in, when she turns her back to look at her phone and they start leafing through the papers on on her countertop, I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God.
0: Yeah, there's something going on here that is not clear to us yet. It will become clear, I think.
1: Oh, I'm sure we're going to learn more, for sure.
0: So I want to put a pin in that. I just want to note the fact that these officers are interested in Grace. They're interested in Jonathan. They specifically asked if they would be able to talk to him when she comes up with this. It's not even a lie. She believes it, but it sounds so fake coming out. Like, oh, I don't really know what hotel he's staying at. You sound like you're lying. How could could you not know? Your husband's gone to Cleveland for one or two days. You don't know where he stayed? It's so weird.
1: But then I also want to highlight one more thing about the detectives O'Rourke and detectives Mendoza. When they're both there in the house, Henry is like very nerved up. Now, this is natural. Very natural. I mean, hello, this is scary. Someone's, Someone's died. There's been a murder. The school is small. Police in your house. But there's something about after they leave when he is like hanging on the stairs, which I only caught in the second viewing. He's sitting on the stairs and he's like looking through the rungs of the banister in a way that was heightened. It was something that drew my eye and made me be like, that kid is extra upset. I don't know what Henry knows, but I feel like he knows something.
0: I meant to bring it up when we were talking about the relationship between Henry and Jonathan. Henry seems, and and again, I may be projecting here, I may be doing what Grace says that her patients are doing uh, on my myself and my son, Henry seems very concerned about having his father's approval. There, there is an aspect to their relationship when you hear them talking, all of their banter is very much Henry trying to prove himself to his father, trying to, trying to establish himself as someone who's more than just his son, but someone that is like a peer, someone that is like a friend, And or trying to get his approval, which is interesting when you think about Jonathan and Grace's father, Franklin, and clearly the ship has sailed on the approval factor there. They have a very classic father-son-in-law relationship. I got a very distinct impression from all of the interaction that Henry very much needs or is looking for his father's stamp of approval on how he's living his life. I I, And I can't even put that into words yet, but it was very much a vibe I got from their relationship. I think you're
1: right on. And I think that, like you said, I think that that's a natural, realistic, you know, extra layer to add in there. Of course, you know, he, he wants to make dad proud, but they made a point of it. So that's something that I feel like we should pay attention to.
0: And they also made a point of the fact that Henry only knows what's going on really good because he wouldn't know Miguel They're in different grades, uh, you know, they're middle school and grade school. But he's watching he's he was watching the reports on his phone, which is a very modern thing that classic crime thrillers wouldn't have had to deal with. But the aspect of getting up to the date news via your phone mm-hmm. instead of from the sources like your parents is an interesting thing that I think we also need to keep a hold of. Henry is interested in what is happening he is. here. The fact that there are two police officers sitting in his kitchen is maybe making it even so more especially
1: So especially I want to add on that Pod Clubhouse covered defending Jacob recently, which was a boy about the same age as Henry. If anyone's saying like I didn't pick up on that, why are you why, why are you looking at the kids at all? I have an extra little part of me that's like I want to pay attention cuz Jacob did the same shit. He was on his phone, he was on social media, he was tracking the stories and so it made it made me because of prior TV viewing, watch Henry Closer, and Miguel for that matter. The
0: last thing I want to bring up is, and I, and I dropped this a little bit, I teased it probably about an hour ago at this point, of Grace as a reliable narrator. And I think this is something that we're going to need to think about. One, because it seems like it's coming up in all the shows we're watching right now. We just got through doing third uh, The Third Day, and there was a reliable narrator question there. It, there is a reliable narrator question in I Know This Much Is True with Mark Ruffalo's characters. And I think there are some seeds planted here where everything we're seeing or everything we think we know that Grace is experiencing may not be the entire story. So there are three specific things I want to just highlight. And maybe they don't mean anything. Maybe they don't mean anything yet. But things I want to highlight. One, when she's waiting for Jonathan to get home from being with his oncology patient, Shelby. Uh, McGibbons after the gala she has either a memory or it seemed more to me like she was imagining what it looked like with Jonathan talking to Shelby because that's Shelby that yes. he's talking to in in the hospital room and there is a shadowed woman that's the only thing you could tell it's a woman's yes. frame behind the the glass doors but it's also kind of dreamy it has like kind hazy, of like a classical yeah? like a white hazy yeah. thing at the at the sides of the frame And it's almost not like she's having a memory of it, but more like she's imagining what that conversation is looking like. Like she knows Jonathan so well, she can imagine the kind of humor and interaction he would have with a patient. Interesting. What does that mean? And are we, are we supposed to take that as, as truth? That was really what was happening or just our memory of her. Maybe, maybe she's the shadowy figure and she overheard her husband one time talking to Shelby or is it just purely her making this? We up? definitely
1: know she, that a patient before has passed away because she makes some comments to him and he goes, not all my patients pass away or die. So I'm going to go with you on the idea that that could have been a memory of a different patient. I don't think he ever said Shelby. To her, yeah, She he did. did.
0: And the actress credit is credited Shelby McGivson. I don't his, so then the, maybe
1: uh, I'm gonna go with the idea that maybe she she was giving a different memory at a different time or something that maybe wasn't that night's conversation.
0: Grace, I think, has a very strong mind. I think Grace is a very intelligent woman. I think Grace is a very has a very powerful mind. I think Grace was inventing what she thinks that looked like in her head, what that interaction would look like. I think she was actually applying because the other memories that we have that we see her have with Elena don't have the haziness they are very clearly memories that we see her have interactions we see her have and so I think there's I think there is a, a specific reason for Intriguing. that
1: but I think it's something we have to keep yeah an I eye definitely on. want to for sure uh,
0: she has a memory of the scene in the gym with Elena when we see when we see it play out, Grace has not yet changed, right? She's wearing, she's still like toweling off. She's sitting on the bench. Elena is in front of her naked. After Michael and Robert's therapy session, she, she imagines back and she remembers later on in that scene. Now she has her jacket on. She's standing. She's getting ready to leave the gym. Elena, still very naked. And that's when she asks, if I did something wrong, I seem like I have unnerved you. Interesting that she had that memory in a fragmented way. She had the experience, which we saw happen, but then she had a memory of it and added on information that we did not have. It goes towards the, the the detectives ask her, how well did you know Elena? And she says, I didn't know her very well at all. I only really met her at the fundraiser planning mm. meeting. Well, no, you actually had at least some significant elongated conversation in the gym so much so that you had to break it up into two scenes when we Good saw point. it. Uh, and then the last one is the very last scene of the episode. We had seen now crime scene photos from above, and we see Alina's body in the studio, and there's a lot of blood, right? Very crime of passion Whatever happened to her happened in a very violent way to have so much blood spread out among her. That was my impression, anyway. The very last scene is looking at Grace, a close up on Grace's face. A flash to Elena's dead body where we see that she's still in her gala gown. She's face up as if she was facing her attacker. She's still clearly in the peach gown, dead. And then it flashes back to Elena, uh, ba- flashes back to Grace. In TV cinematics, that is a memory. That is not just one thing happening and then another thing happening and then going back to the first thing happening. Is that her memory? Is that her inventing what she thinks the crime scene looked like? I don't know. But it's something I think we have to keep an eye on. I think there's a lot of clues in all three of those things when it comes to grace. I'm really
1: looking forward to unraveling this mystery because I think that this is something that has so many possibilities. And I'm excited to keep all of these little chess pieces on the board until we can knock them off one by one.
0: I expected something good because of the cast and the creatives behind it. It really took me and and grabbed me and pulled me in so fast that I was I was a little unnerved <laughs> by how into it I was out of the gate. And that's why we're talking exactly. about it. Well,
1: this is Caroline.
0: And this is Mike. Thanks for listening to the Do We Unnerve You? The Undoing Podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We really appreciate it. If you leave us five stars, it makes Apple like us a lot. We Unnerve You, the Undoing Podcast, is a Pod Clubhouse original production, recorded, produced, and edited at Pod Clubhouse Studios. For more information on Pod Clubhouse, please visit us online at podclubhouse.com or on social media at Pod Clubhouse.